I'm Bill Hemmer. I'm Dana Perino. I'm Chris Wallace, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Tuesday, March 17th, 2020. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. I know this all feels pretty dramatic. Schools and restaurants are closing. The president's recommending we avoid discretionary travel. But it won't last forever. And most who get the virus do recover. We have to kind of keep it balanced and give people at least some hope, you know. Keep yourself apart from other people, but it's not as though every single person has COVID-19. I'm Jared Halpern. Congress is dealing with the coronavirus in the age of social distancing. We are all working hard in our congressional roles to make sure that our local leaders have what they need, to explain to them what's coming down the pike from the federal level. Um, And I know that's how I'm spending all my time. And I'm Brian Kilmeade. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Some people are frightened over COVID-19, even those who are still out and about and going to work. We have the option from working from home. I'm going to talk to my boss today actually about it because I'm actually really scared. You are scared. Yeah, I am scared. Yeah, this is really crazy what's going on. Schools are shut down in several cities and states. Bars, nightclubs and in-restaurant dining has been shut down in some places as well. Six counties in the Bay Area have asked all residents to essentially shelter in place. London Breed is San Francisco's mayor. The new public health order that we're announcing will require San Franciscans to remain at home with exceptions only for essential outings. These measures will be disruptive to day-to-day life, but there is no need to panic. One can leave to get groceries and walk their dogs. First responder agencies, police and fire and medical services will remain open, as will grocery stores, pharmacies, gas stations, banks and hardware stores. While the Bay Area may be experiencing some of the most stringent restrictions, President Trump has not announced a national lockdown or quarantine. He did say on Monday, My administration is recommending that all Americans, including the young and healthy, work to engage in schooling from home when possible, avoid gathering in groups of more than 10 people, avoid discretionary travel, and avoid eating and drinking at bars, restaurants, and public food courts. While all of this sounds and feels dramatic, scientists and doctors also say most people who contract the virus do recover. Organizations like Johns Hopkins are tracking the very fluid and changing data. Microsoft has a tracker using data from the CDC, the World Health Organization, and Europe's CDC, and it shows tens of thousands are considered recovered. So the estimates are that 80% of people are recovering. Dr. Devi Nampia Parumpal is an associate professor at NYU School of Medicine. We don't know the long-term effects, but at least in the short term, if we look at other viruses as well, once somebody has recovered from the acute period of illness, they have a period of time that You know, their body may be healing, but they are at least safe from getting reinfected with the virus itself. So for the most part, once they've recovered, they have recovered. If we look at chickenpox or something like that, um, you know, that are more common viruses, when you get it, you have a period where you're sick. And then for several decades, you tend to be safe. Of course, you know, if you get immunocompromised, Mm. something happens, it could come back as shingles. So we don't know yet what the long term effects of this virus are. But at least in the short term, the people who've recovered seem to generally be doing well. Some have some lung scarring. That's one thing that's been mentioned. That could be because it's a respiratory illness. So the body is uh, 
using the lung as its battleground to fight the virus. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because that was one of my questions. A lot of people on social media have been asking me questions because I have access, of course, to people like you and all day long, all I'm doing is reading about this. And one of the questions I have received is, is there lung scarring and is it permanent or maybe do we hope it's impermanent that the lung could could heal over time? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, the lung can heal. So that's the great thing about the human body. We could see a lot of this different damage when we're fighting any kind of pathogen, whether it's a virus, a bacteria, a fungus, and then we can heal from that. But it's a little too early to say whether that scarring will be permanent or not. Uh, We also have to see just because somebody has a scar doesn't mean that it will, in fact, affect how well they can breathe or affect Mm. them in some other practical way. But at least right now, people are seeing the scarring. I've also received a lot of questions about reinfection. You kind of just touched on that. Is it possible to become reinfected? There does seem to be some literature out there, um, and it's a little confusing. You know, I'm not a obviously a doctor, so it's hard for me yeah. maybe to understand. But um, it sounds like there there have been some reports of people having it, then testing negative, then testing positive again. Is that maybe the quality of the testing, or are those one-offs? Well, you're raising a good point that we have to know a little bit more about the accuracy of the testing, especially when it was done early on. Uh, Sometimes, you know, in a rush to get the kits out, people can have problems with the full accuracy of these tests. So normally in other conditions, we have usually two different types of tests, one that's called a screening test, where you want to make sure it tests positive as often as possible. You don't want to miss anybody that could be sick and then you get a false negative. So in many conditions, we kind of use a combination of two different tests. Here, you know, we have countries all around the world who have been using different tests, labs developing different tests, and we don't know what all the methodology is. So it's possible that, you know, some of these tests, there was a false negative, maybe a false positive. Then you have another issue where we're learning more about viral shedding. So this is whether a person who has been infected is actually still harboring the virus in some form or another. Mm. Yeah, what, what qualifies as recovered? It's when you test negative, right? I mean, that then, you, I mean, I think that that would, would seem obvious, right? But is, is it that yeah. simple? <laughs> well, that, that seems like the simplest solution. Uh, so I would say probably that person is recovered if they've tested positive before, they have no symptoms, and now they're testing negative. Uh, but there could be other folks that may be, you know, clinically are recovered. So let's say that they had symptoms, they tested positive. Maybe weeks later, the test could still be positive, but they look like they're fine. That's where we'll really need to figure out, are they recovered also? And maybe this is something to do with the the test being overly sensitive. So that Hmm. we'll still have to figure out. That might be a gray area. I mean, if we look at it, Uh, other things like the flu, for example, usually people are infectious, meaning they can get other people sick for a few days before they even come down with symptoms. And then it's usually about a week after that they stop being as infectious or when they stop showing symptoms completely. So they pretty much look fine. But we're not in the habit of routinely testing people that look fine to see if they are shedding any virus. Microsoft has a COVID-19 tracker. It, it, they're, they're putting out that, um, you know, as of Monday, midday, almost 78,000 
people have recovered. Seven, almost 78,000 recovered cases. That's compared to 94,000 active cases and just over 7,000 fatal. Do those numbers sound right to you that we would be at about 78,000 recovered cases at this point? That sounds about right, especially if we think about it uh, in terms of this first appeared in early December and at least from what, you know, from what I'm hearing from these reports is that most people recover if they have it within a couple of weeks. Some people who are much more ill could go on for longer, but that sounds about right. We're also hearing uh, researchers at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore trying to come up with a treatment using the, the blood of patients who've recovered, uh, essentially like harvesting the antibodies from these people. How, how, does, how does that work? So I think that's promising. I mean, now that we have so many folks who are in the recovery uh, category or recovered category, we can look at how did they actually fight and defeat this virus, right? So our immune systems uh, form antibodies. These are basically proteins that recognize the virus and then go specifically fight it. And once you've recovered, you usually hold on to these antibodies you know, for several years, sometimes a lifetime. So they protect you from getting infected with that virus again. Uh, what they're doing is they're basically trying to get these antibodies from people who have recovered, concentrate them, and then boost the immune system of people who don't have those working antibodies yet. And they're still actively trying to figure out how to fight the virus themselves. So folks who are severely ill, right? The problem is, uh, although those antibodies can fight the virus, perhaps, they still could also fight the person you're trying to help, right? Because the purpose of an antibody is it's supposed to recognize things that are foreign. So if you take your own antibodies and then they go into somebody else, they might recognize that person as foreign and attack that person too. Doctor, several states have closed schools, restaurants, bars. Are we in for maybe a national approach when it comes to a sort of lockdown? I know Dr. Fauci has said when asked about that, he would prefer as much as we possibly could to distance ourselves and that we should really be overly aggressive and get criticized for overreacting. Are you anticipating a sort of a national approach to what some states have already done? I think there will be, but I think we're not seeing it yet because there's still a lot of unknowns. I mean, it's a balance, right? If if we socially distance ourselves, kind of separate ourselves more, then the chance of getting exposed to more germs, not just COVID-19, but germs in general kind of comes down. But even from a medical point of view, so of course, you know, we're talking about the economy, the social cost, the human cost, all of that. But even from a medical point of view, I'll say that we're seeing some problems because people there are a lot of people who are sick in this country, you know, people who have their immunocompromised sort of situation. They have multiple medical problems. They're older. They need other medical care besides uh, being evaluated for COVID-19. And what's happening is the mixed messages are a little confusing because should they come in for their medical treatment that has nothing to do with COVID-19 or should they mm. stay home? You know, should they be going to the pharmacy? Should they be having their surgeries and procedures? You know, if they have, uh, you know, if they have autoimmune conditions and they have other immune uh, disorders, are they at risk then coming into contact with the healthcare system? So I think, you know, we have to kind of keep it balanced and give people at least some hope, you know, that you can, you know, keep yourself apart from other people, but it's not as though every single person has COVID-19 and you have to worry. Right. You still have to take care of yourself and do some basic things. 
Doctor, I have one more question for you. Um, I am hearing from people who say, you know, well, I am young, but my immune system is compromised or I'm in my 40s, but I have asthma. You know, what is sort of the health line, for lack of a better term? Like what evidence do we have so far about people in their 30s, 40s, 50s who are relatively healthy, you know, but maybe having varying experiences with this virus? Yeah, there's still a lot to be learned. I mean, in China, the folks seem to stratify themselves more according to age. So we saw people that were older really were the ones most at risk. But then in France, you're seeing people who are younger. It's unclear if they have other medical conditions or not. But you're seeing kind of a surge in people who are younger developing problems. I don't know if that's because they thought they were safe. Uh, So then maybe they were doing things a little differently. Um, But I think generally anybody who has a respiratory illness, so let's say asthma, uh, COPD, bronchitis, any of this type of stuff, generally I would say, you know, they have to take extra precautions. Anybody who's immunocompromised, now there's a range of types of immune disorders, but if you're somebody who is on a medication that's suppressing your immune system, let's say you just had a transplant uh, if you're, you know, if you're somebody who relies on medications um, either to boost or suppress your immune system, I think you have to be more cautious. You probably had to be cautious anyway. Uh, but for other folks, if your medical condition really has nothing to do with uh, your heart and lungs or your immune system, of course, be careful. But I don't I, I think I would put you in a different category or risk category. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Numpia Parumpil. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. This is Brian Kilmeade with your Fox News commentary coming up. The next 15 days could make all the difference. President Trump joined by his administration's top public health officials and members of the coronavirus task force are outlining significant guidelines for Americans over the next two weeks in hopes of slowing the spread, flattening the curve of COVID-19. If we do a really good job, uh, we'll not only hold the death down to a a level that is uh, much lower than the other way, had we not done a good job. Among those recommendations, no gatherings of any kind of 10 people or more. State governors are in some cases going further, forcing bars, restaurants, and movie theaters to close. Food service restricted to carry out and delivery only. Social distancing, in other words, is becoming the new normal for the foreseeable future. Except for one group of Americans who skew older than average and shake hands for a living. Congress trying to deal with the coronavirus outbreak and simply working from home isn't really an option. That being said, the House is supposed to be in recess this week. Members are back home, but the Senate is in session. That means staff, Capitol employees and reporters are there, too. It's raising questions about the government response, financial support for hard hit industries and the future of Congress voting remotely. I talked about all of that with Michigan Democrat Alyssa Slotkin, a first term congresswoman who early Saturday morning voted along with most of her colleagues in the House in favor of an economic stimulus aimed at providing free testing and unemployment and food security assistance to families facing job losses and quarantines. Most of us have sent our work, sorry, our team home for telework. You know, I know my team has gone on telework as of last week. Um, We can do most of our work remotely. 
And I think most house offices are adjusting to the fact that the building's not letting in visitors, there's no tours, that kind of thing, which really helps. You know, this specific legislation aside, uh, the CDC uh, put out new guidelines warning people against groups of more than 50 people uh, for the next eight weeks. Um, so this current legislation aside, what is a realistic timeline um, for you guys to return, considering that, you know, a lot of uh, your colleagues are not as young as you are? Yeah, well, listen, I mean, the speaker has been very clear with us that our job is to legislate and to vote. And even if our staffs aren't in to support us, we will be doing our job. And by the way, this isn't the first time in history that Congress has had to deal with, you know, illness or flu or malaria. I mean, um, this is not totally unprecedented, but it is our job to be legislating. So if we're called back, um, I know we're all on a quick string to come back to Washington if we need to, and we'll do it. Um, and, you know, I, I, obviously we have colleagues who are older than we are. Um, we already have some of our colleagues who are voluntarily self-isolating and quarantining who haven't been voting. If people need to do that for their health or because they've been exposed, they should do that. And we already, I believe, have at least 10 members who are doing that um, even before we, you know, sort of went into our separate districts. Have you given any thought, has the Democratic leadership given any additional thought to voting remotely? You know, it's interesting. There is a bill that some of the freshman members have been pushing um, that calls on remote voting. And while I don't know that we have a secure enough technology to implement that now, I think it certainly gives people an interesting um, thing to chew on for, you know, the future. And, uh, and of course, you know, the freshman class in general, both Democrats and Republicans, are on average 15 years younger than the rest of Congress. So we think about how to bring technology into Congress and modernize Congress kind of just in our sleep. We do that regularly. So there is a letter going around um, calling on the speaker uh, to support remote voting. You mentioned, uh, obviously, the freshman class. You were a member of that freshman class that really is responsible for the Democrats being in the majority, flipping one of those seats. Uh, the election is not that far away. Have you given any thought to how you're going to run for re-election if this is a, a long-term sort of normal for this country, this uh, social isolation? Yeah, I mean, i got to be honest, that's obviously not the priority right now. We are all working hard in our congressional roles to make sure that our local leaders have what they need to explain to them what's coming down the pike from the federal level. Um, and th I know that's how I'm spending all my time. But it is um, prompting a lot of questions about how do you engage with voters um, when you can't pull them all together into a big room, when you can't, you know, maybe people aren't um, interested in having someone knock on their door, certainly not now. Um, so I've asked uh, my team to kind of get creative and think about this and come up with a plan. Um, we're all in new territory here. Um, it's not the priority right now, but once we get a month or two into this, you can see how um, from everything from the presidential down to the most local level, we're going to have to be thinking out of the box when it comes to campaigning. Yeah, I mean, it's not just campaigning, I suppose. I know generally during a, a district work period like you are in now, you would have, what, two, three town halls? I mean, how, how, what was your normal schedule like during a, a recess period versus what it's going to look like uh, this week? Yeah, what's interesting is, so I do have a big town hall, but it's a teletown hall, right? People can call in, listen, ask questions. We have experts on the line. We've really transitioned a lot of our meetings, including all day for me today. A lot of my meetings that I would have done in person, we've transitioned to video teleconference. Um, a lot of my uh, visits to places are now being done by phone call. 
So we're trying to um, maintain a robust contact with people without being in the room with them. And I think that's going to be um, the challenge for people who are used to kind of getting into a big room, shaking hands, looking people in the eye. We're going to have to figure out ways to do that. I did a big event yesterday that was by video conference, you know, where everyone can click in and you can ask questions and engage directly. Um, it's just a it's a whole new world when it comes to keeping up with your constituents. Was that the original plan? No, absolutely <laughs> not. The original plan was to be in a room together. But yeah. we we can't I can't um, in good faith do that. Right. It doesn't make sense. We had a number of um, older folks who were participants in the meeting. So uh, we went to video teleconference and we've invested in um, technology that allows us to do that in a way that's professional and still allows people to engage in that back and forth. You know, you can do a Facebook Live video, but it's hard for people to ask you direct questions. They can't look you in the eye. At least in a video teleconference, people can see you and raise their hands and get called upon and ask their questions. What's the, uh, have you gotten a timeline from, from the speaker, from leadership? I mean, are you guys, from a, a congressional standpoint, sort of coordinating with the White House? What does what that look like? What does the yeah. apparatus look like as far as trying to figure out I mean, the Senate's in session. A lot of people are questioning whether they should be. So here's how it, it has been working and what I anticipate. Um, the House has now passed two emergency coronavirus appropriations. One was about 10 days ago um, that covered things like investing in research so that we can understand this thing, um, investing in a potential cure, but also just in the nearer term, some treatment, right? How do we treat people who have this thing? Um, along with some other emergency provisions for uh, the federal government and our, and our research world. The second uh, bill that we just passed through the House and is now awaiting review in the Senate is helping families, and particularly those people who work for small businesses who don't have access normally to sick leave or emergency family leave. It makes sure our kids can still get meals if they were getting them through school. Kind of the emergency response um, for our families bill. And then we're going to have to do at least one more. And that third one, frankly, I think of as kind of the big enchilada. That's going to be the economic recovery package. Well, we and need to talk that, about that. I mean, what is that? look? I mean, please. I've talked to a lot of lawmakers who have said, you know, this is the time for a big stimulus package. But what does that look like? Is this bailing out, uh, to use that word, you know, airlines, hotels, cruise lines? Is this more focused on that you know, it's always infrastructure week in Washington. Is this the time to actually do infrastructure week? Yeah, so this is the, these are the kinds of conversations we're just starting to have. Um, it's in, the drafting is in its infancy, and those kind of fundamental questions are all on the table. The bailout piece, but also how do we make sure, since, since we, are, you know, we have gone through a similar type stimulus requirement back in 2008, Right. We did have these conversations and you can learn a lot from what we did then and try to help that guide how we move forward on this package. I know that a bunch of lawmakers are getting on a call this week, myself included, to talk to experts, people who were in charge and living through that 2008 experience. Gonna go th they're going to go through the lessons learned and then we're going to come up with our sort of suggestions on what should be in this big economic recovery package. The big thing for me is hearing from my district. So we've already put out 
um, a new uh, like address on the web where our constituents, especially our business leaders, can write to us and say, here's what really needs to be in that economic package. I need to hear from my district on what they need, in addition to folks who lived through the 2008 recovery package. Have you given thought to a, a temporary uh, cut to the payroll taxes, as President Trump has suggested? You know, I know that he floated that. To be honest with you, a lot of the business leaders that I really take my cues from did not think that that was the most urgent need. Um, but I, those are the kinds of things that are absolutely on the table. And I'm not going to rule out anything. Um, I just think we need to be prudent. We need to be thoughtful. And we need to not just chuck, you know, sort of money at the problem. We need to have a plan. And then it has to be negotiated. And I know, based on watching the back and forth between Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin um, and Speaker Pelosi, you know, that took a good three days of just almost shuttle diplomacy, phone calls and visits. Um, so we know that this is going to be a big debate. Um, that's a healthy debate. We should have that debate. But what I want to do is get started. And that, for me, starts with hearing from my district. Congresswoman, I appreciate the time in these uh, uncertain times to, to answer these questions. Stay safe and uh, the best to you and your uh, constituents. You as well. Take care now. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. How he picks five stories, most important to the most entertaining, to the buzziest. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America is listening to Fox News. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Brian me. What's on your mind? Well, let's talk pandemic. There are so many different facets and moving parts and affecting everybody that's listening right now. But I'll focus on one area in which I think many can identify with, and that is homeschooling. We're all homeschoolers now, right? Whether it's a kid back from college who's got to have the discipline to interact with their teacher who's there or virtually there, or it's a first grader who's learning to spell, or or an 11th grader that's getting ready for the SATs. Here's what I would recommend universally. Create a time to go to school. What time do you get up? Make it that same time again. Make them get dressed as if they're going to school. Make them have an agenda. Make the class sessions go about 50 minutes to give them time off. Also, let them hop on their smartphone and interact at a time in which you set aside for them, including lunch. Put some structure to the lack of structure. Give them a couple of days off to get used to their new lifestyle and then put them to work. They will enjoy it and maybe in the end, the family might in fact become closer. Closer. I'm Brian Kilmeade and that's what I think about a place in this country where we've never been before. You have been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to Fox News Radio's hourly newscast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, visit foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 